0: Welcome back to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. I have the honor of having on the show today the author of the new book, Gaslighting America, Why We Love It When Trump Lies to Us, Amanda Carpenter. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: You are a CNN commentator. Uh, You are a a conservative uh, in good standing. As for, at least from my perspective.
1: Yeah, in my small group of conservatives left, yes. Yes, a very good standing in this very small room.
0: But you are <laughs> – you you wrote this book saying not just that Trump is a liar, that he is a systematic liar and he won because we love it that Trump lies to us. I, I imagine that when you got into politics – more than a decade ago, you would not have envisioned yourself writing a book like this?
1: No, absolutely not. I mean, usually when politicians are exposed telling lies, there's a backlash, they're discredited, they feel a sense of shame, they apologize, and then they go off into the ether. That is not the case with Donald Trump. He takes lying to an entirely new level, which I describe as gaslighting, and the environment rewards him for it. I make the case that there's three major centers of influence in the modern political system. You have the Republicans, who the base loves it when he lies because it's an expression of shared loyalty to their causes. When he says things like, lock her up, or we're going to build the wall, and Mexico's going to pay for it. Those things are not true, but it's a form of virtue signaling that he is willing to say whatever to win. And the base eats that up. The Democrats love it when Trump lies because they keep falling for this fantasy that the next lie or the next stupid thing he says is going to do him in, and that the old rules of political play are still apparent when they're not because the Republican base, again, eats it up. And then you have the media, which loves it when he tells lies because it provides endless material that is very, very easy to produce, whether you're a blog, a TV station, a print reporter the easiest thing to cover for clicks and subscriptions and ratings is a he said she said you just have to play the tape or get the quote of what trump said and get reaction it is so easy and they can't get enough of it
0: how how is gaslighting different from the usual lie that we expect from our politicians
1: a lot of politicians lie um, george w bush said there's going to be wmds in iraq Uh, Barack Obama said, if you like your health care plan, you can keep it. Those are lies that I believe were told by people who thought that it would probably turn out to be true. They didn't know it was going to be wrong, but they were kind of hoping it would come true. Trump's lies are with the intent of just creating an entirely new reality. And this is the best way of explaining gaslighting. Imagine you're walking down the street and someone says, hey, Bill, what color is the sky today? You look up, it's a beautiful day. You say, it's blue. They say, no, 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 it's green. And you say, no, it's pretty, it, it's blue. And then that person gets all their friends to say, no, it's green. And then they have these scientists come out with studies saying, well, under these conditions, it can certainly appear green or maybe appear green to some people because they're colorblind. And then you start to say, okay, maybe you have a point. And then let's say CNN has debate panels <laughs> to debate whether the color of the sky is green or blue. And you either start to doubt your faculties and start to say, okay, I can see how it's green. These people believe it's green. Or maybe you just go completely crazy. Like, hey, you idiots. Obviously, the sky is blue. You're stupid. I can't stand you. No one should listen to you. And then you're gaslit. Either you become dependent on what these manipulators are saying, or you go crazy. That's gaslighting.
0: Now, I can see how... The media is attracted to that because, as you said, it produces it, easy to produce content. I can see how Democrats would be uh, sucked into debating it because they want to prove that their facts are correct. Um, why is it, it, how does it virtue signal to his base? W- what is special about gaslighting that the mere utterance of basic conservative principles can't do?
1: The place where this all starts in terms of defining Donald Trump as a political figure is with birtherism. You have to remember when he started to emerge as a possible Republican candidate was when he started dabbling in birtherism. Now, I'm not even sure Donald Trump believes in the whole thing, but here's what I'm certain he did know. He knew there were a lot of Republican voters who were still really mad at John McCain, And Mitt Romney, even for not going as hard against Barack Obama as they should have. They wanted a candidate who would seriously pick up any weapon on the battlefield and use it against the enemy. And those candidates refused to do it. And Donald Trump knew that there was a base of voters who were interested in this issue, um, not only for discrediting Obama but, you know, probably you know, playing to the racist elements that were out there. And so this is the first step in what I define as Trump's gaslighting processes, process. He finds narratives that really no one else in their right mind would approach, but can be cultivated into something politically fruitful. Because remember, he didn't start doing this until Obama's second term. The birtherism stuff was pretty much over with John McCain's campaign. You know, all the lawsuits with Orly Tates and all those crazy people, it was over, but then he started doing these interviews, saying, "Well, has anybody looked into this?" He made I've there's a lot of reports on the internet. Um, maybe maybe there's something to this. And then all these reports were made. It's Donald Trump a birther. He made it a point of national conversation again. And So that's the first step: finding a politically toxic narrative that forces people to choose sides and takes control over the media landscape. And he is excellent at it. And then the second step I describe as advance and deny. And you will see this. This is the key to understanding how Trump plays the media again and again. He'll say something. He's clearly there to do an interview about birtherism, right? Like, you know, everybody's going to ask him. He went essentially on a media tour, but he wouldn't commit to it. He would just say, well, other people are saying What's wrong with people looking into it? He wouldn't say, yeah, I don't believe this. He just made the conversation. He was advancing the narrative, but denying any responsibility for it. And he did that for a few weeks. He can stay in that phase for a very long time. And then just when people are starting to get sick of the story, (laughs) he goes back to the media and says, well, I have investigators going to check this out. I hear there's a report coming soon. And this is the third step, which is creating suspense. You'll see this he does this all the time. He can use this step to really stoke a narrative for years as he did. And then along the way somebody will come out and say, "Donald Trump, what you're really messing with some terrible things. You, you you're you're a racist, right?" And then he'll say, he'll start discrediting them. "Well, I'm just trying to clear this up." And he'll go at them like, "Oh, you know, like he's the good guy." And that's step four, discrediting the opponents. You essentially draw people out so you can attack them. And then the last step is declaring victory, no matter what happens. I'm sure you remember during the campaign when he summoned the National Press Corps to the Trump Hotel <laughs> to finally make the last statement on birtherism, And essentially, it came down to him saying, He's a citizen, but I didn't start this. I didn't start this. Hillary Clinton didn't, and I finished it. And so there's the discrediting the opponent element there with him bashing Hillary Clinton and then him claiming victory. Like he was the good guy in this whole scenario. And then then he said it was over. This is an issue that he had been on and been stoking the media for years and years and years. And it actually led to Barack Obama producing the birth certificate. I mean, it's it's really incredible. And so when you see him find a target and zone in on these weird narratives, you'll see these steps become apparent because he's just an old dog that does the same tricks again and again, and they keep working. And so the point of the book is for me to show how he just keeps doing the same things again and again, and we keep falling for it. Because I don't want these tactics to work. I want Republicans to win, but not like this. And so this just needs to stop.
0: (laughs) So... The suggestion there that he has this kind of five point plan for gaslighting, does that? Are you suggesting this is this is a very deliberate strategy on the part of Trump as opposed to him being erratic and unhinged? And I mean, you can be a pathological liar without being a, a, a brilliant strategist, but you think there's sort of a brilliance behind it?
1: Yeah, I'm not saying he sits. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying he sits with like a whiteboard and says like, okay, here's how I'm going to do it. I mean, the, at its core, his form of gaslighting is a media strategy. And he has picked up these techniques and tactics by keeping his name in the tabloid press as a New York businessman for many years. I think it's almost like breathing to him. Um, and these are just things that work for him again and again. Like the advance and deny stage, you can see it with the tweet that he posted the other night about leakers in the White House it was a mind bender he was saying well there's so-called leakers in the white house and then goes on to describe the leakers as traitors and cowards so he's advancing the narrative there's leakers who are traitors and cowards but denying that they're there by calling them so-called i mean this is just his way of speaking and operating and pushing narratives out without ever having to be responsible fully it's it's really incredible and once you start to see that particular step You won't be able to unsee it because I can probably find an example every day of him doing it.
0: Now, you share in the book uh, the traumatic experience that you went through during the 2016 campaign when the National Enquirer Mm -hmm. uh, and Trump surrogates uh, accused you uh, absolutely falsely, to be very clear, uh, of having an affair with Mm -hmm. your former boss, Senator Ted Cruz. Before we get to the specifics of that, you you had already expressed your opposition to Trump as a conservative in the primary. Can you lead us through uh, why you opposed Trump as the nominee and how that led to this horrendous episode?
1: Sure, sure. Um, So I was working for Senator Ted Cruz in his Senate office through July 2015. At that point, they wanted people to move to Texas to be part of the campaign on a senior level. I had two kids. I I couldn't do that. I'm not from Texas. I'm from Flint, Michigan, outside of there. Um, I I wasn't packing up and moving for a campaign. And so I was hoping they were going to have a DC office, but that didn't materialize. And so I decided because I'd worked in the media before going to Capitol Hill, you know, actually sparred with you back in the day when I was at places like Town Hall and Washington Times, Mm -hmm. that I would, you know, try to reestablish my media career. And luckily, uh, CNN picked me up as a contributor. They were lo- really looking to add to their roster. You know their wide their wide cast of characters that came on in the 2016 election, and from really from July and August, Trump became the main topic, largely because he was willing to talk to the media and talk to places like CNN where other Republican candidates didn't. And so, you know, I said. I always wanted the race to come down to a choice between Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. I thought that would be best. And to me, the more that Donald Trump talked, the more he became a non-starter. It started with his uh, eagerness to talk about expanding libel laws against journalists that printed unfavorable stories. That was really the first line for me. Um... Uh, the second line was just his, his kind of smear tactics, calling John McCain, saying that he wasn't a war hero. He didn't like people who got captured. To me, that was just a non-starter for anyone who would be commander in chief, period, the end, let alone the things that have come out of that White House since then. Uh, later on, him willingness, him s- talking favorably about torture techniques and saying that he wants to do torture um, that was another bright, bright line. And Eminent Domain was actually important to me too because he, he supported Eminent Domain, which is the government seizing of property. Um, so like there were things in the mix where I'm just like, this guy just doesn't have the mindset really to lead the military, but also the free speech issue was big to me. Um, and that only intensified. And so it really got to you know, a breaking point where I felt like I had to say something very specific in early March I was writing at a place called Conservative Review. And to me, what was really disheartening were the elected officials who were coming out and endorsing Trump, who I really just viewed as rank opportunists who saw a chance to get on board with the presidential campaign and make a name for themselves. That, that's what it seemed like to me at the time. And so I wrote, you know, being very provocative, a blacklist of saying, these are the elected officials who are endorsing Trump who should know better. And, you know, I would never work with people because of the poor judgment that they are showing. And so it wasn't like saying these people shouldn't, you know, have work or whatever. I'm just saying like good conservatives should never work with these people again. They have terrible judgment in doing this. And so at that point, I became a target. Um, a lot of the Trump blogs went after me, like a uh, gateway pundit, Jim Hoff, who I had known from Tea Party work and stuff working in Senator DeMitt's office and who you know, has really gotten extreme for Trump and done things I never would have predicted since then. Um, you know, came out against me. Sarah Palin, who I had once, you know, really looked up to and met a couple times, wrote a Facebook post, you know, going after me. And so I kind of knew that was a point of no return, but I didn't fully realize what could happen next. And so that leads into the National Enquirer story because that came out not long after. And I can't say for sure they were linked, but I know, you know, in March, I made myself a target and people came at me pretty
0: hard. Now, the National Enquirer story, which alleged that Ted Cruz had several affairs, Mm -hmm. it doesn't print your name. I know.
1: It was so. Yeah, it is. you, You
0: explain how this came about.
1: Sure, It is very, very, very crafty how they did it. And I am certain it was deliberate. So, the National choir, th- for some reason, there had been this like story bouncing around the internet. Again, this is like one of those narratives that's out there, but no one in their right mind would jump in front of that Ted Cruz had a sex scandal. And I know the campaign had gotten questions, and essentially, they would say, "Well, what proof do you have? We're not issuing a statement. Do you have a video? Do you have a picture? Like, do you even have a name?" And nobody ever would. So somebody was out there shopping this and putting it on the internet. and then lo and behold. The National Enquirer does a front page story, pervy Ted Cruz has five mistresses, and on the front cover were the images of five female faces, but they're pixelated. But people on the internet could pretty much figure out who they were. And inside in the story, Roger Stone was quoted, because you always need a quote to make any kind of story saying, well, if there's smoke, there's fire. And if this is true, this would really hurt Ted Cruz at the evangelical base. And so the story actually named no one. But everyone on the internet went off on a witch hunt, essentially, to figure out who those five women could be. And my picture, one of the pictures people thought was extremely similar to a front page photo roll call had published of me about my work for Ted Cruz. I mean, the images lined up exactly. And so it. It's like okay, Amanda's one of the mistresses. What does she have to say for herself? And I wasn't going to respond to the story. I mean, it was stupid. There's no truth to it. I, and me, so were. Who, saying,
0: who, do you know who 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 first connected those dots?
1: I don't know who did. I really don't know. I just know I was on Twitter, and all of a sudden, the images of the pixelated image and the roll call image started popping up. I can't. I I, I have no idea how that started. And then another image was linked to Katrina Pearson, who was working for Trump at the time, and she essentially went out and said, well, this is not true, but I can't speak for the other women. So at that point, it became a story because you had one of the women responding to it, making a statement, and essentially pointing the finger at everybody else. And the thing with all these stories, they go nowhere until there's a statement of denial. Then it's a story. And Katrina Pearson certainly knew that. Either she's incredibly stupid, I don't think that's the case because she's worked... In these circles for some time, she knew what that would do, and so I still wasn't going to respond because there's no story there. There's not a shred, like it never happened. I not a shred, not even a chance. And I knew that. And then one day, because I'm still working for CNN, I go to the studio to do a normal segment, and I thought there was a chance, like a reporter would ask me about it. You know, people at CNN had asked me about it. You know, what's going on with this? I'm like, it's trash. I don't know. And maybe on the street, somebody would try to shove a camera in my face, like TMZ style. I thought, okay, that's in the realm. I can handle that. You know, I kind of prepared myself for that, took the steps of talking to a lawyer, even to figure out how to protect myself from that. Um, because these things can kill your career. I mean, I've been working, I came to Washington in 2005, had worked as a Capitol Hill reporter, worked in two Senate offices, was working at CNN. I knew this could be bad, even though there's nothing to it. But this is, it happens to women in the media. Okay. So I go to do the segment. The topic that day was Ted or Donald Trump attacking Heidi Cruz's looks, you know, because he was on Twitter posting something of Melania with an unflattering picture of Heidi Cruz and threatening to spill the beans on her. I mean, it wasn't like subtle. And I was paired with Adriana Cohen, who's a columnist for the Boston Herald, who I'd never met before. She was a Trump supporter. Didn't didn't have any reason to think it would go badly. And she just hijacked the segment. Kate Baldwin said, you know, what do you have to say about this tweet about Heidi Cruz? And she essentially said, well, all I want to talk about is Amanda Carpenter. You've been named Amanda in the National Enquirer as a mistress. What do you have to save for yourself? And Kate even tried to cut it off. Like that's not, that's not moving on from this Heidi Cruz story. And she just kept going at it, Amanda, you've been named. What do you have to say? I mean, keep in mind that was not true. I had not been named. I had a freaking picture, pixelated, had been linked to me. There was nothing to prove it true. But here I am in live TV now. And then Kay has to say, Amanda, go ahead and respond. And so I had to respond to this thing that was completely untrue, knowing full well everything I was going to say on national TV was going to make it a story. And I just, I said, this is tabloid trash, you know, um, if you want further comment, talk to my lawyer, but I'm not backing down on my criticism of Donald Trump, because I was absolutely certain that's what this was about. It was about my criticism for Donald Trump. I don't think it was an accident that Roger Stone was quoted in the story. Don't think it's an accident that the National Choir, who's very close to Donald Trump, ran with this story. Um, you know, I, I was pretty sure why this was happening, although it was completely unfair and untrue. And at that point, I was starting to be gaslit. I was forced to respond to this completely fake narrative and fight my way out.
0: And is that a situation where in a lot of cases, you can look back and say, I would have done X differently. But what can one do on live television in that moment differently than what you, than, than what you did? I and mean, that sort of seems to be the essence of gaslight where you're just kind of trapped and you can't get out of it.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I would have done anything differently. You know, I couldn't have not gone to work. I couldn't have, I, I'm proud of what I said in the air. I'm proud of how I handled it. What I regret is what came later. And so after that segment, I mean, I just, I didn't expect that to happen. My phone started blowing up. You know, all these reporters know how to get a hold of me. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? I'm like, I'm not saying anything. I said everything I needed to say on the air. But the internet was just going crazy. Uh, The Cruz campaign had issued a statement. Trump campaign issued a statement. And what he said was so Trumpian. It essentially said, I hope it's not true, but the National Enquirer has been right before. And unlike Ted Cruz, I don't surround myself with a bunch of innocent people trying to pretend they're innocent. And once again, the National Enquirer has got it right before. And so he was, you know, advancing and denying, pushing that story out. And I went offline. I I can't, listen, I handled cons for Ted Cruz during the shutdown, you know, at the beginning of his campaign. I know what a lot of incoming fire looks like. This was on a completely different level. I could not even begin to monitor the tweets and things that were coming in at me. I, it, I, I couldn't even triage it. It was coming so fast. I mean, people, and these are things that I needed to respond to. It wasn't just hate tweets, which I can handle, like, fine. It was people photoshopping images of my kids, claiming that you know I had a cousin in Michigan who confirmed the affair. Not true. Fake Facebook accounts of my husband purporting to confirm the affair. I, it was wild. And so my husband was set to work at that. They're essentially like, you know, my, my friends and my husband, like, don't look at Twitter. Just stop. And so I tried to go offline. And then that Sunday was Easter. People were even coming up to me in church Saying, what's going on here? And I live pretty far outside DC. This isn't, you know, I'm not in McLean. I am outside the Beltway. And people are coming up to me saying, what's going on? And so that was okay. I felt good that, you know, I had a handle on this. But then I started going back online on Monday. And that's when I lost it. I mean, this is when I, I feel like I was really gaslit because Dean Scafino, who's a White House social media director, started pushing this crazy video, which is really just, a string of images of me taken off the internet and just you know stupid pictures I did, had taken, like trying on clothes in a mirror, and just strung together like it proved something had happened, and so at that point, I felt like I had to respond to it again. And, you know I essentially said this is harassment by a presidential campaign. you know you trolls need to go back to stuffing huffing chemtrails. I said unkind things about Donald Trump's record with women um and I didn't say anything that was wrong, but I, you know, I was raging and my husband came to me and he said, you're going crazy. You have to stop this. But I couldn't see it. And then I got a call from, you know, people at work who said, okay, now that you want to respond, essentially you need to come back to CNN. And I had to do an interview with Jake Tapper about it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done that. I didn't want to sit down and do an interview with Jake Tapper about a an affair I never had. That's not something I ever wanted to do. But then I had to clear it up. So that that was the mistake that I made big time.
0: I'm uh, talking with Amanda Carpenter, author of Gaslighting America, Why We Love It When Trump Lies to Us. So, so after that kind of searing experience, uh, how does that change your whole worldview of politics? Does it, does it make you rethink things in the past about how uh, politics is waged, what other Republican campaigns have done, what how Democratic campaigns are our, our run or I mean, how much of your political uh, philosophy and worldview has been altered by this experience?
1: I suspected it before, but now I know it, and that's that lies, smears and conspiracy works really damn well in campaigns. We want to think as Americans that the best guy will always win. Nope, that's not true. That is not true these kinds of smear tactics work. I mean, I could have had my whole career derailed, which is, you know, a minor subpoint in this, but I just think this is illustrative of understanding the rise of Trump because you keep seeing these things happen again and again, and it's because it works. Gaslighting works. In this environment, there is a constituency to create lots of incentives for Donald Trump to keep lying and smearing his way to the highest political office in the land. And I'm not sure this, any of this would have worked had he not been faced with Hillary Clinton, who was also pretty deeply flawed. Um, But I want people to understand that there's power in this stuff and the way that Donald Trump attacks people, he makes it very, very difficult for them to respond in a credible way. And, I think people should look at the way that he's attacked James Comey. He essentially boxed Comey in pretty dang hard by calling him a leaker. And then Comey's only choice to get his side of the story out was effectively to leak <laughs> his side of the story. And then as Donald Trump is attacking him, his character, the FBI, he writes, you know, this very thoughtful book, put a lot of time in it. He goes on the media tour. And all people do is pick James Comey apart for not responding the right way. How many times did you hear that James Comey is too sanctimonious and too full of himself? Right? Like, is that the message? He's out there trying to present his version of events and defend his FBI, his record, the actions he taken. But now it's a character issue with Donald Trump of all p- people. And that is a very real dynamic.
0: Now, the vast majority of your book is putting the blame on, on Trump and Trump surrogates and Trump voters. Uh, but you don't let Democrats off the hook either. How are Democrats, uh, what responsibility do Democrats have to take in th- this whole gas line dynamic?
1: Well, it was no secret during the election that the Democrats wanted Donald Trump to be the nominee because he would make the Republican Party look like a bunch of racist, hate-filled mongers. We know from emails from WikiLeaks that came out that the Hillary Clinton campaign was actively talking about ways to make Trump the leader of the Republican field because they were scared of Jeb Bush. I think there's a ton of people in the media who wanted Donald Trump to be the nominee because it would make it easier for Hillary Clinton to win. And so this is really the worst dynamic in American politics right now is how each side roots for the worst of the other side to prevail to make it easier for themselves to win. I mean, that's great for the campaigns, pretty terrible for America. And I think that's what we got, truly, in 2016 with Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was a non-starter for so many Republicans dating back decades. Um, I know a lot of liberals think Benghazi's the punchline. That was pretty darn real, to Republicans who didn't trust her to be commander in chief because of all the nonsense surrounding telling America what happened there. And then the emails, which she certainly took great lengths to obscure from public record. And, you know, I can understand where she's coming from, but they lied and stonewalled and did all kinds of stuff that proved all the things that Republicans suspect about Hillary Clinton for so long. And there's a lot of conspiracy that I get into um at play there with Hillary Clinton because she had a lot of unfair things like completely untrue things thrown at her that had no basis in reality. I referenced the um the death list, right? I'm sure you've gotten this at some point in time of all, apparently all the people that Hillary Clinton and her husband have killed over the years. People think that's real. And even people who know it's not real kind of go along with it because it just confirms what they want to think about Hillary Clinton anyway. And so These things are very deeply rooted in the American culture. Uh, You see it play out now in in insane levels with people like Alex Jones, who I want to dismiss him and poo-poo him as much as anybody. But man, he has a lot of followers. And those people don't necessarily think everything he says and does is real. But it's fun to watch and let's go along with it anyway.
0: So what what is your sense now of the the conservative uh, electorate. Uh, So here you are, you're you're still holding the conservative torch, you're trying to protect conservatism from uh, Trump's uh, behavior, and and in some cases, his platform. Uh, But has this gone on so long that Trump and conservatism are so intertwined that they can't be separated?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure they're going to be. I mean, well, here's the first thing. Until we have better choices in the system. Republicans are going to stick with Trump. You know? Uh, they're gonna take the policy wins, they're gonna turn a blind eye to all the character issues. And that's gonna be that. I keep getting people asking me, like, well, how will the Republican Party survive? How will they do? And I just say, until the Democrats present a better alternative, they'll probably be just fine. What are you talking about? The Republican Party is gonna implode. There's there's no better choice. If you care about low taxes and you know shrinking government, even though that's not happening with Donald Trump, and you still distrust the Democrats on national security issues, and their stance on abortion at 20 weeks or more is a non-starter, there's nowhere for Republican voters to go. And so they're going to go along with Trump. Until there's an alternative, they're going to be fine. They're going to stay in power. The end.
0: I mean, is it a question of Trump delivering policy wins, and therefore, if he doesn't deliver policy wins, there he's in trouble, or is the gaslighting itself?
1: So, well, wait, hold on, okay. If Trump doesn't deliver policy wins, does that mean they're going to surrender everything to Democrats? No. <laughs> like we're we're held hostage. There's nowhere to go. It's Trump or nothing. Like it's Trump or Trump.
0: <laughs> well, take for example, uh, you know. Right before we talked, Trump had a tweet saying uh, this Chinese telecom company was in trouble because of uh, American actions. And so he was going to direct the Commerce Department to reverse it because we need to save Chinese jobs. So here's something that is sort of 180 degrees opposite of everything that he campaigned on. Is it, it, something like that have any chance of making a Trump voter saying, wait a second, you know, now you're gaslighting me?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you still you see some voters saying "Uh, this isn't really what we signed up for. But again, we're stuck on the boat. There's until there's another election. I mean, is there a Democrat that's going to stand up and say, "I'm going to put an end to these contracts and I'm going to put every government agency under an audit to drain the swamp"? I don't think so. I I would like that. I would listen to a Democrat who says something like that. But if the bad things are happening and you're upset, you don't go to a candidate who you perceive as doing worse things.
0: Now, you, uh, would you say that—
1: I know. It's, like, very upsetting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, we don't have to end the, end the whole thing on a down note, but we'll get there. Um,
1: yeah, go ahead. Ken. We can only go down <laughs> from here.
0: <laughs> um, you do say in the book that Trump is not the first presidential gaslighter in history. You do um, take Nixon to task. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? And are there, is it just Nixon and Trump or is there more examples that you think we you can look back on and say, you know, that.
1: Well, we'll do quickly. Obviously the Clintons gaslit America by denying any relationship with Monica Lewinsky. I mean, that girl got torched, um, say whatever you want, the affair, blah, blah, blah. The investigation, they went out and described her essentially as a looney tune, a narcissist, an obsessive. Meanwhile, the president was inviting her into the Oval Office, sending her gifts. They were pretty much boyfriend-girlfriend. And yet this girl got hauled into the Ritz-Carlton by the police. They threatened to throw her mom in jail. She really, I think Monica Lewinsky deserves a big retelling. I don't condone what she did at all. But the way that she got trashed by the people looking to support Bill Clinton over a complete lie is pretty incredible. In the light of me, too, and even she's spoken about that a little bit, and even last weekend, she was invited to this town and country event as a guest and got disinvited because Bill Clinton was going to be there so that's amazing to me and but it doesn't compare to what the Nixon administration did with Watergate. I think the you know, a lot of people compare Watergate and what's happening with Russia. And there are comparisons there, but people don't pay enough attention, in my opinion, to the enablers that both Nixon and Trump have surrounded themselves with who will go to such insane lengths to defend their president out of loyalty to him. The similarities are pretty amazing. Both Nixon and Trump got into trouble because of their deep paranoia about government leaks with and their resentment towards the press. That's really what created, that's why the Watergate break-in was created, um, because Nixon was upset that somebody was leaking the Pentagon Papers to the press. And keep in mind, Watergate was like the third break-in. They had already done a few before successfully. Donald Trump got into trouble with the Russia investigation because he believed the FBI was leaking against him to the press. That led to the firing ultimately of James Comey, which led to the appointment of Robert Mueller. So there's similarities there. But they both had people willing to go along with it. And I I really just can't shake the image of G. Gordon Liddy, who is very prominent in conservative circles as a radio host. And I actually got sent to his studios to do an interview with him when I was a really, really um, young reporter in Washington. I mean, the things that G. Gordon Liddy was proposing to do to top staff at the White House, like firebombing the Brookings Institution, which Nixon wanted to do, by the way, I'm not making this up, um, poisoning a reporter, doing all kinds of destruction at the Democratic Convention, kidnapping people. I mean, it was the whole deal. He went to prison for it. A lot of people went to prison for Watergate. And so how this relates to Trump is that I think he inspires the same degree of loyalty with his people. Maybe not criminal loyalty, maybe not killing people like Gordon Liddy wanted to do. But the similarities just jump off the pages of history when talking about the thing as a witch hunt, calling it a hoax, saying that both Watergate and the Russian investigation is something only the DC D. elites care about. I mean, it's like they ripped the talking points straight out of Watergate. And here's where I think history tells us these gaslighting techniques don't work. Trump is an effective gaslighter because he does it offensively. He kind of picks a target and goes after it in makes people meet him on these terms. Presidents are not successful when they do it as a defensive measure. It didn't work with Watergate because ultimately the truth came out. They ultimately were not in control of those events like when Donald Trump takes on Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Megyn Kelly. Um, They're not running the table here. And so that's where I think we might see some resolution on this because Donald Trump can... He launched this huge counter narrative that there's a soft coup essentially against his presidency and the FBI is just filled with a bunch of Trump haters who never wanted him to be president. You know, that narrative is doing a lot of work for him. There's a lot of people in the conservative media, especially who will buy that and eat that up. But ultimately, he's not in control of the facts and where this is going to go this time.
0: So you end the book. With some positive guidance, you, you don't end on uh, the world's going to end. Uh, how
1: I think we will survive Trump. I actually do. We're going to be okay. It might be rough, but we we will get through this, America. Survived Nixon. We did. We did.
0: So how? So now that you see it, now you see how gaslighting works. What can you tell others? How they can, in your words, fireproof themselves from gaslighting.
1: The biggest takeaway is that people have to break the dependency on Trump. All the chaos that he creates is a form of manipulation to take control over the Republican Party, the Democrats, the media, because him keeping people off kilter keeps the eye on him. And so we got to break the dependency for Republicans. I don't know. Republicans are a little bit of a lost cause, but Republicans running You've got to try to find a way to create a Republican identity independent of Trump. No one seems interested in doing that, unfortunately. Uh, The Democrats who are running, you cannot just run on an anti Trump narrative. That only gives him more power. You really have to be willing to compete. Um, This media environment demands people who will give them access, who will create a story and actually be interesting. You have to feed the beast. Donald Trump won this is this is his playground now. If you want to take over the playground, you're going to have to get on it. No sitting on the sidelines, just saying, oh, Trump is so bad, all these voters are going to come to me. No, no, no. That didn't work for Hillary Clinton. And then the media, I really wish they would break the dependency. Of course, we have to cover Trump. Absolutely. Of course. But there are so many other stories that could be told um, that aren't even related to Trump directly. You can include Trump. I mean, For example, the fact that a bunch of investigators went after a bunch of old Obama officials for the Iran deal, that's crazy. How come there's not a story about that? Um, But until there's a willingness to break away from the Trump tweets, he's just going to have total, total, total power.
0: The book is Gaslighting America, Why We Love It When Trump Lies to Us, uh, published by Broadside Books. Thank you, Amanda Carpenter, for being on the show.
1: Thank you.